Well, together, let us turn to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 26. Chapter 26. And we're, we're in between a passage that we looked at last time, uh, looking at Peter's denial and Paul. And those, those events bookend uh, the event that we're looking at this morning. So before Peter denied Jesus, we have this event in verses 36 to 46. But I wanted to take that the experience of Peter there and look at it as one event rather than two separate events. And so we come back now to verses 36 to uh, 46 this morning. So let's read that together. This is on page 832. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands, hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Well, we're moving into the, the really the heart of the Bible, the heart of the person of Jesus, and the work of Jesus. It is here where Jesus is ultimately defined as the Savior of sinners. It is one of the most moving moments in all the Bible. One of the dangers, of course, in reading the Bible is to become familiar, too familiar with something. Enough stopping and savoring and thinking through what is actually going on in this. Jesus has come to Gethsemane, a word which means all of Christ, uh, or olives were pressed and the oil taken from them. Yet there's another pressing, isn't there, that's going on. 
What is happening is as Jesus is moving closer and closer to the cross, he becomes more fully aware of what will become of him, what will happen to him on the cross. Now that's a progressive thing in the in the life and the mind of Jesus. It doesn't happen all at once. It doesn't happen when he's a baby, or it doesn't happen when he's 12. It doesn't happen when he's 30. But it begins to take on a, a, a rapidity here, a, a, a speed, as, as, as Jesus is now moving toward the cross. And as he undergoes his final test of obedience and love to the Father, the Father now pulls the curtain fully apart to show Jesus what will happen to him. The punishment that he will have to take upon himself. The shame, the guilt, and all of that that will be put upon him on the cross. It is the most painful moment for Jesus. We talked last week about the denial of Jesus by Peter, or the week before that, the betrayal by Judas Iscariot. But none of them come close to the pain that Jesus endured in terms of the rupture that he felt between he and his father. There was an unbroken relationship there. As Jesus prayed, when he prayed in his life, it was immediately heard in heaven. It was immediately answered. Everything that Jesus prayed to the Father was heard and answered. Jesus is moving into a situation now where that is no longer the case. And we see the toll that that takes upon Jesus as he uh, pleads with the Father on three different occasions. Not just sitting on a bench praying, but on his face, prostrate, on the ground, praying uh, to his Father. And we see, what we want to see in this, is not just simply the details of the sufferings of Jesus, but the greater message of the Bible is that God so loved the world we're seeing the love of God toward us, toward sinners, toward this old world. And as we look at this moment in time, hopefully we'll be able to leave here different people, with a different view of God, with a new desire to worship Him. And hopefully for every one of us, both young and old, to come to saving faith in the Jesus that is described in these words. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. This was a place where Jesus frequented when he was in Jerusalem, a garden where he could pray, where he could be alone. There's a church there now called the Church of All Nations built upon the traditional spot of Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that is James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. 
is why I said in the beginning, it didn't all come upon Jesus at once. Here there is an intensity that is now taking over the mind and the heart of Jesus. A sorrow begins to well up around him and within him. Notice those words. My soul, he says, is very sorrowful even to death. In other words, this sorrow right now that I'm feeling feels like it could take me right now. It, this sorrow that I feel, I feel could kill me, could strike me dead at this very moment. And we're talking about Jesus who endured so much already in his ministry. So much heartache, so much uh, affliction, and so on. And yet he is saying that the trouble that I feel right now, before the cross, before the nails, before the whipping, before the scourging, it itself is in danger of taking me I am sorrowful even to the point of death. It tells us he began to be sorrowful in trouble. The wonderful thing that uh, we often say about the, the, the book of Psalms, and it's not original with me, I, I heard it somewhere else, but uh, uh, is that the book of Psalms speak more clearly about the thoughts and the feelings of Jesus than even the Gospels, than even what we find here in Gethsemane. We know for certain that Jesus felt sorrowful and troubled even unto death. But when we go back into the Psalms, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Psalm 42, we begin to get a window into the very feelings of Jesus. How he felt when these things were passing before him. How he felt when the angry mob was around the foot of the cross. He, as Psalm 22 describes him as bulls, strong bulls of patience, with their horns that gore and attack. We also can go to the Psalms, as the New Testament invites us to do. It invites us into the heart and mind of Jesus. What a wonderful thing, friends, that a thousand years before Jesus came, King David and other songwriters were writing about how Jesus would feel and think and the sorrow and the terror and all the things that fell upon the heart and mind of Jesus as he was nearing the cross. Is it not the word of God? Does it not then have the the fingerprints of God all over it? Could any man write this book? No. On many levels, it is a blessing to us because it tells us that we can have confidence in what this book says. Even the difficult things that we have to live through in this life and say, yet, nevertheless, God's word is true. And in those Psalms, Psalm 69, which we read at the outset, the psalmist there who is writing with a view to the coming of Jesus and the person of Jesus. He speaks of Jesus' ministry, going into the 
money changers. Driving out the money changers. And then the gospel writer says, this was to fulfill what was written by the, the prophet, by the, in the, by the, the psalmist. Zeal for your house has consumed you. Yet in that very same psalm, we have a window into the, the heart of Jesus. Verse 20 of Psalm 69, reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. Here we get an insight into the heart of Jesus. Jesus is pouring out his heart in a way that we've never seen before. He's laid bare. He's raw in a way that he's not in, in any other part of the Gospels or the Bible. He reaches out for help to those who are closest to him. Though Jesus was God, he was also truly man as well. And as a man, he looked for the comfort and consolation of those around him, as we do. That's what's part of what makes what what's part of being a human being is to that connection that we have with other human beings. To look to them for help and for strength. And the, the, the sorrow now is becoming so intense with Jesus, he's reaching out to those who he knows will soon forsake him. He, he said that. Remember last week we talked about it in verse 31. You will all fall away because of me. This point. Yet there was Jesus. Come. Pray with me. Stay here with me. Watch. He was, he was genuinely asking for their help. He wasn't just setting them up to fall. He wasn't just saying, watch this. I'm going to tell you to do something and you're going to fail. No. Jesus was genuinely looking to them for some kind of human sympathy, for some kind of connection, anything that would encourage him. As it was with the woman who did Pour an ointment on his head. Cleanse his feet from her tears and dry them in her hair. That ministered to Jesus. In a real, emotional, complete way. And that inability for them to enter into his pain was for him a real source of, of trouble and sorrow. Again, Psalm 69, verse 20 says, I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. That's genuine sorrow, friends. We're not to think of Jesus as being some kind of steely individual who didn't heal. What we're finding here in the psalm is the raw emotion that Jesus felt when he looked to those who were the closest to his comfort. Think about it. Think about the people who were the closest to you. And in your worst moments, you're not able to find help and strength from them. This is the way it was with Jesus. That intensity is again borne out as he comes before the Father three times with his petition. 
three times Jesus comes to the Father, spread out on the ground, not just, again, kneeling down, but face down before God. Why is it? Why, why this sorrow? Why the intensity? Why now? Goes on in verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but as you will. It's that idea of the cup. The cup. There's a cup being put into the hand of Jesus. And in the Old Testament, the cup had various applications. It was a cup of blessing. I will take up the cup of blessing. But then there was also the cup of wrath. And that's the cup that is now being handed to Jesus. And Jesus looks over the brim of that cup and he sees all the sin of the world. He sees all the guilt and the shame. And he sees all the, the hatred of God against that sin. He sees all that he will become. Become guilty of. And as he looks in that cup, his human nature begins to recoil as a holy being at the very thought of what he would become. And so he prays to the Father, if there is any way in your plan, anywhere at all, that this cup that makes me what I was not, not before, that makes me an unholy and an unclean thing, that cuts me off from your presence. If there's any way, may it, O oh Father, pass from me. That is what Jesus is seeing as he looks, as, as the Father is pulling back that curtain. He is seeing the wrath and the judgment of God upon sin, which is good. It is right. We believe in justice. We believe in judgment. That's what makes God good. God is a good God because he will judge evil. We, we don't want to rob God of that. Even if it's judging your evil and my evil, he's still good because of that. And Jesus knows that. And he's not faulting the Father for that. He knows it must come to pass. He knows there is a day of reckoning that must come upon sin. Whether it be his death or our death is a day. God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world. This is the cup that God has described in various passages in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 51, Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury, you have drunken the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. So the cup that Jesus that is put now into the hand of Jesus to drink, he does it with trembling. He does it with wrestling. Because he knows that he will be made guilty, friends. Not just that he will suffer for it your sin and my sin, but he will be made guilty for it. We know what it's like. 
Good word. Made to feel guilty for something we didn't do. Did you leave the mayonnaise out last night? No, I didn't leave the mayonnaise out. Yes, you did. No, I did not. Even something so small. Did you do this? No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Even if it's a small thing, we become very, very defensive. Because we don't like being made to feel guilty for something we've done. Yet the Bible tells us that when we believe in Jesus, our consciences are clear of guilt. We have no guilt or shame anymore. Why? Because that, even the guilt, was put on Jesus. I mean, it's one thing to go through suffering knowing that you didn't do it, right? Okay, I know that here I'll, I'll pay the price, but I didn't do it. I didn't. But when you're made to feel the guilt of that crime, not just having not having done the crime, but, but feeling the guilt of the crime, and to think of all the sins that are just in this building here this morning in our lives, let alone all the sins down through the generations. And Jesus becomes guilty of those. And you see then why he, he trembles before such a prospect. You see why his holy soul, soul recoils at such an idea. He knows that at the hand of Holy God, sin will receive its full punishment. He will be at the epicenter of that. He takes upon himself all the covenant curses of the Old Testament and more of God's disobedient people. And he comes as the true Israel, as the true son. And he says, I will, I will bear the burden. I will bear the price. I will bear the guilt. I will do all of these things. As that begins to well up around Jesus, as that comes into Jesus' consciousness more and more, he has a drowning sensation. He's crying out crying out to those around him, to, to weak sinners. He knows we'll be denying him and fleeing from him. He, he's so desperate, he's crying out to them, could you not watch one hour? He's crying out to his father, and the heavens are silent. He's a drowning man. Save me, O God, the psalmist says in Psalm 69, for the waters are come in unto my soul. Christ sink in deep mind. Again, the psalms opening up for us a window into the very heart and emotions of Jesus, how he felt there in the garden as the cup is unveiled before him, as the window is finally fully displayed to him of what he would become the guilt and the shame and the, the wrath and the alienation and all that was, he had to bear upon that cross. Waters are come. He's drowning in the presence of his 
to watch someone that we love die in our very presence. And then to accentuate that, to realize that it's in our power to deliver them at that moment. It's one thing to see them perish before us and not be able to do anything about it, but to see that take place when it lies within our power to deliver them. That is the way it was with God the Father, friends. If it be possible, let this cup pass from you. Why would God, who has the power to deliver, who sees his son praying in agony three times, if it be possible, the son, when he prayed all through his life, the answer was there in an instant. There was no hesitation. It was the father's delight to give to the son everything he desired. And now, how the son would have felt that, how Jesus would have felt that in that moment, wasn't there the first time. It was back. Again, silence. Again, silence. Oh, the love that drew salvation's heart. Oh, the grace that brought it down to me. Oh, the mighty gulf. That God did spare. That's why Jesus this morning is the spectacle of angels where they cannot stop saying, Holy, holy, holy. You are worthy, worthy as the Lamb who was slain. They can't stop. Every day brings new realizations of the glory of the Lamb. How, what must they have been thinking as they looked at such a spectacle as this? And one angel that tells us in the Gospels comes and sits with him. That was the only measure of comfort that Jesus had. That's why we're told why Jesus has died for God so loved the world, friends. It's a measure. Every tear that Jesus wept, every searing pain of that came from denial and betrayal and the whip and the nails and all everything was a testimony of love that God had for sinners like you and I. And that's what we see when we see these words. When we see these words coming from the mouth of Jesus, when we see the heavens silent, when we see Jesus crying out, we are not to say, what a what a unfeeling God. Completely lost, is it? What manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. That he would see his own son perish. Not only that, but that he would be the one to cause him the pain. He would lay upon the son the things that would bring him grief and pain and sorrow and death. 
Remember what we saw last week. God says, I will strike the shepherd. I will strike the shepherd. It won't be so much the Romans or the Jews. I will strike the shepherd. Why? For I love the world in this way that I gave my only begotten Son that whoever believes should not perish but have everlasting life. And so Jesus surrenders to the will of the Father. The thing that Jesus desired more than seeing cup pass from him was doing the will of the Father. He always did the will of the Father. It was his food. As he said, it was my meat and drink to do the will of him who sent me. He knew that God must be honored. God must be glorified. And all that he does is so he, he, he punctuates each cry of his heart with this saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It's here we see the full extent of his love to us. Jonathan Edwards said that the heart of Christ was full of distress, but fuller of love for sinners. Full of love. Full of full of compassion for sinners right from the very end to this very day. But here the battle was won. Our faith was sealed in those moments as Jesus in his final test wrestles with the Father and he comes forth. As the Father opens everything up to him, throws the curtains wide open, says this is what your destiny is. This is what your lot will be. This is what you will become. This is what will become of you. And Jesus takes that cup. He drinks it. And he, as one person said, he lifted it. He took it off. So that when you and I pray, we can come confidently and say, Father, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Is it any wonder after seeing this that we start off not with me, 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 but with thine be the glory? Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not coming with a long list of things that we want from God, and then hopefully down having some kind of priority for the will of God and glory of God down here. This is why. As the Gospel of Matthew begins, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And here we see the fruit of it. Here we see why that is the case and why we always ought to seek first the kingdom of God. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto you, the Lord. Lord, who am I that I should assert my agenda before you? Lord, it is your will. What would you have me do? I am not my own. I have been bought with the blood of your son. Lord, speak to me. I am your servant. That is the way in which we come before this kind of God. Jesus rises from his feet. Rises from his face, I should say. Found him sleeping. 
So leaving them again, he went away and prayed the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayer at that hand. He was going to meet this way. He was going to meet Judas and the band of soldiers that were coming for him. He rises from his feet with that determination to do all that the Father had called him to do. Not one thing that he was called to do would fail. He would complete that mission wholly. Till he cried out on the cross, he is finished. One person said he prayed his way to perfect calm. So what does that say about where we are this morning? What does that say about you this morning? Maybe you're you're not a Christian this morning. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home. Maybe you've come to this church for many years. And yet you're keeping God at arm's length because you don't want the implications of submitting your heart and life to Jesus. I ask you in light of in light of a struggling Messiah who on his face Three times before the Father, as he looked at your sin. And as another gospel tells us, he sweat, sweat great drops of blood at the very prospect of becoming the sin bearer for you and I. I say to you, what prospect do you have this morning of standing before such a God? If this is what happened to Jesus, if this is what he was reduced to, what chance do any of us have? We have no chance except by coming. And this is why this gospel has been given to us. It's, got, it's called gospel because it is the good news. That's what gospel means. It's the good news about Jesus. It's not the good news about you. It's the good news about Jesus Christ and what he did. You see, he's doing this for us. He's taking this in our place. And through faith, I enter into that. And I own it. I own all of it. Can I explain it all? Do I deserve it? No. And I'm taking it. I'm taking it by faith. Knowing that the fire has already fallen. The price has been already paid. And if the fire has fallen, it cannot burn again. The, the, the debt cannot be demanded a second time. Therefore, I plead with you, as Jesus, by his Spirit, is calling out to you this morning, be reconciled unto God. Come into the provision that I have made through my tears and through my sweat and through my agony and through my death. I have prepared all you need through my very death. Will you not? Will you not? enter into it and embrace it this morning. Please, don't let this be just another Sunday where you walk out the door and life is the same. All over again. Throwing off, throwing off, throwing off. Friends, no. Consider the love how we do such a thing. Do 
consider a God that would do such a thing. And don't allow yourself to be lied to again by the devil. To say you don't need it. Or it's going to a change, affect your life in, in, in the wrong, all the wrong ways. Don't, he, he is the father of lies and he would convince you otherwise. But God by his spirit and through his word is saying to you, this is what I've done for you. This is what I've done for sinners. This is the way that I have opened up. Will you not now believe and come and submit yourself unto this? What more perfect God and Savior could you find than this? What greater hope can you have than this? There is none. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no other. Why would we? Why would we want to look anywhere else than at such a love and such grace? Lord, just as this was the most monumental moment in the life of Jesus, where he stood the test, where everything was laid bare before his eyes, and he moved forward. He believed, he trusted in his loving Father. He committed his soul and his life into your safekeeping. Father, may it be so with every one of us in this church this morning, from the smallest, tenderest child among us to the oldest, that we, O oh Lord, might commit ourselves into the safekeeping of such a loving, gracious God that did not spare his son. That though he heard him pleading and crying out, would not respond because it was the only way we saved. Father, may each one of us recognize the solemnity of this moment. May we yield our hearts and lives to this Savior. Thank you, O God, for all that you have shown to us. Thank you for your word, which agrees so amazingly the Psalms agreeing with the Gospels showing us that this is truly the very word of God. We ask and pray all these things in the name of Jesus.